Hi, friends. Welcome back to With Great People, the podcast for high-performance teams. I'm Richard Kasparowski. Our special guest today is Jeff Sutherland. Dr. Sutherland is the co-creator of Scrum, founder of Scrum Inc., inventor of Scrum at Scale, and a signatory of the Agile Manifesto. To support this podcast, visit my website, kasparowski.com. Hi, Jeff. So great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's great to be here. Really great to have you. Uh, we both put on our black sh- our black shirts. We we both look amazing in our black shirts. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to anything else you want to add on to that introduction? No, I I other than you know it's now since uh, we updated the Scrum Guide last year. It's you know it's been Scrum is now more than 21 years old so and it still seems to be expanding which is really amazing and maybe the most most interesting thing I learned this year as I was working with Ken Schwaber updating the guide is that uh, he said Jeff I'm ready to update the guide so it's applicable to all kinds of teams not just software teams he says you tried to get me to do that 10 years ago (laughs) (laughs) and I said well you know uh, in, in my company, Scrum Inc., most of our business is not software anymore. It's 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 in other domains. And his uh, his uh, CEO, Dave West, said, "Well, that's true of Scrum.org as well. Most of our business is not software business. So we've actually crossed a big divide. And and Scrum is eighty percent of Agile. So Agile in general today is more outside of software than software itself. Right, right. Pretty amazing." It is amazing. It is amazing. And, okay, so I have a couple of questions about this. So the big the big change in the newest Scrum Guide is that it's applicable to businesses outside of software. Is there anything else about the new Scrum Guide that you think really stands out? Yeah, there's about four things that we we tuned uh, to make it. We wanted to make it simpler. Like if you're giving the Scrum Guide to a sales team, it needs to be simpler and so we focused it on one team. You know, the product owner, Scrum Master, and the, and the team members are, it's, it's all one team. We used to have this kind of, uh, we used to have this concept that there was the Scrum team, the product owner, Scrum Master team, and then there was the development team. Okay? Yeah. That was a little confusing. Yeah, it's confusing to a salesperson. <laughs> so we fixed that. Mm-hmm. But there was also a couple of other things in there. Ken felt the biggest problem um, in the industry was that, Scrum masters were taking the term servant leaders, and that meant they didn't have to do anything to change the behavior of a team when it's dysfunctional. And, and we're getting a lot of complaints from executives saying, you know, these scrum masters, we pay them a lot of money. They're really just secretaries. Why do we really need them, right? <laughs> so we had initially Ken wanted to take out servant leadership from the guide and everybody screamed, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so over a long period of time and almost a year and a half uh, of kind of figuring this out with the scrum community, uh, it now says a leader who serves. A scrum master is a leader who serves. A leader who serves. That is a really nice twist. Yeah. And it, it really does change the text. Yeah. Another similar thing was the word self-organization. We found in a lot of companies, uh, the agile 
developers were saying, well, self-organization means I can do whatever I want, and they're not delivering, and the management's all set, the product out of the screen. And the servant leader <laughs> lets them figure it out for themselves. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, we felt we had to do something to that. So we said, you know, self-organization comes from complex adaptive systems theory, where a intelligent system self-organizes to achieve a goal okay so it's all about achieving the goal and we felt that this could be better understood by uh you know people all across the world because scrum is in almost every country in the world you know it could be interpreted better cross-culturally if the teams are self-managing and then we elevated the goals Initially, uh, Ken wanted to make, <clears throat> well, there were complaints about product vision, okay, because the product, uh, complaints in the Scrum community, the, the product owners don't have a vision. We have this concept of a vision in the Scrum Guide, but the product owners don't have it. And so we said, well, we need to make that a lot more concrete. And what is the concrete piece of what a vision would be? Well, that would be, the backlog itself, but the goal that the total backlog is trying to achieve. Right. So now we have a product goal front and center. Right. And we wanted to strengthen the word commitment, right? Because of the self-organization problem. So we said, okay, uh, the product backlog is designed to achieve the product goal. And, and the product goal is the commit, the commit, the team is commitment is to, turn that product backlog into the product goal. Okay. And then we, we dropped down to the sprint goal. We already had that in the guide, but we said, okay, the sprint backlog, the commitment of the team is to achieve the sprint goal. Mm -hmm. And then the third artifact, the increment, the commitment of the team is to achieve the definition of done for that increment in the sprint. So, I'm, I'm just working now through a new book, or it's actually not that new, that Gabby Benefield uh, wrote, a little book of Scrum, really good introductory book. And we wanted to make it consistent with the Scrum Guide. I'm finding that almost on every other page, you have to change a couple of words because yeah. self-organizations, self-managing, <laughs> uh, leader who serves, <laughs> the commitments, <laughs> the goals. <laughs> those things have to be tweaked. So, yep. uh, so I'm working on that right now as well. All right. And, and now the, the other part of my, my, my two big questions, we call it the Agile Manifesto colloquially. Officially though, it's the Manifesto for Agile Software Development. Is that right? It's like the, the full I think that's maybe title of it. what it says. We'd have to go look at the webpage. In yeah. Manifesto.org. Um, but we always call it the Agile Manifesto. Yeah, it may say have a formal title on the page. On the and, and it's it is specifically about software, but it doesn't really have to be, right? Right. The only thing that the only thing that I do today when I'm talking about it, the second value is the most important one, and that is delivering early and often. Basically, uh -huh. or, or we said working software we value over comprehensive documentation. So I changed that software to product yeah. when I'm talking to people today. Because most of the people we're talking to are not software people. And so they'll complain if you if you, you know, start talking about software with them. So right. but every everything else works. 
that's just that one word, software to product, makes it acceptable to everyone. All right, cool. Cool. Uh, let's see. So, so this is the podcast about teams. Yeah. And uh, our, our guests usually talk about the best team they've ever been a member of in their lives. And uh, when, when I say team, what we mean is any group of two or more people aligned with a common goal. Like you, you talk about yeah. Scrum and goals. We just talked about that. Um, and it doesn't have to be a work team. Uh, it could be, you know, I talk about my wife and me. Uh, we're, we're a group of two or more people aligned with common goals. Uh, any group that you've been a member of, any, any team you've been a part of, what's the best one of those in your entire life? Well, I, there have been many, but if I had to pick one, I, I would certainly focus on the first scrum team because <clears throat> they produced the most significant results. And also it was transformative for every person on that team. It was a life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. We also might talk about, though, the, the what about a set of teams? The highest performing set of teams I've seen was at Patient Keeper. Okay. And, and that was uh, certainly a transformative development experience for, for the company. Um, the problem with great teams is that they don't last forever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, <huh? laughs> almost uh, the story about what happens afterwards is almost as interesting as the actual sure. team experience. Where do you want to dive into the first scrum team? Or? Go to the first scrum team, yeah. Okay, so wh- where was that? It was at Easel Corporation, and <clears throat> I, I had started a prototype of what became Scrum 10 years earlier and in a large banking company, and I had gone through, I was hired into multiple technology companies, um, doing innovation, building the first internet news company, uh, one of the first object database systems, um, a lot of technologies that ba- the banks needed uh, spun out of that, that banking experience. And I was running an object database company. I was president of the company, uh, a company which is now known as Matisse. It's a, <clears throat> it's a high performance transaction processing system that mainly runs multi $10 billion nuclear processing plants lights out. So mm-hmm. extremely reliable, extremely fast and massive amounts of sensor readings. So I was running the object database company where we were actually finalizing the product itself <clears throat> and also doing a lot of consulting around the world and using the product with object technologies. And that database came out of the AI world. <clears throat> and in that AI world, we had very rapid software development with constant refactoring, constant updating, uh, continuous integration, uh, continuous deployment. The system's always working. Yeah. All the things we, we do today were, were part of that, that early AI product development. And the CEO of Easel called me up one day and he said, Jeff, we've, we've been trying to hire a new head of engineering. And it's particularly important because we bought a company in a German company, uh, a small talk company. And the purpose is to leapfrog the technology that we're building because we're building a 4GL language product right now, which is one of the leaders in the industry, but 
there are many different competitors now coming on the scene and we need to, you know, we need to do better than that. And we need someone who has a, a history of innovation to come in and uh, take this new company we just bought mm-hmm. and use that technology to create a completely new product line that's going to replace a 4GL product. Yep. So he wanted to hire me like kind of like a chief engineer at Toyota. You come in, we're going to give you whatever you need. We don't even know what the product is yet. <laughs> You're going to have to figure that out. Okay. So uh, it sounded really interesting. And at the time, my object database company the, uh, was uh, funded by the French. They were getting a new round of investment. And there was some uh, disagreement between me and the new investors that we had to settle. Uh, but I had this offer from Easel in the midst of all this. I decided to go to Easel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they gave me the best C++ developers they had, and I worked for them for some months. Uh, I had spent years on standards committees, uh, usually as the editor, uh, writing specifications, you know, standard specifications for the industry. So I said to the team, I'm going to be the guy that writes all the specifications, <laughs> which today we know is the product owner, right? right. <laughs> and they were kind of horrified, but I said, look, I know this stuff. And, uh, and basically, you don't have the kind of experience we need to build this new product. When we figured out what it was, it turned out to be uh, a system where you could visualize the system and then that visualization would auto-generate all the code. And then you could dive into the code and change the code and it would automatically update the design. So you Got could it. do the, the first round trip kind of engineering product. And uh, I, was, I was in a meeting with uh, one of the early users of that product is now, he was the head of Agile at IBM, Scott Ambler. He's now moved over to the project management institute. He's the head of the agile programs, and uh, I'm on a com- I'm in a committee meeting uh, for one of the OMG standards, which we are both are on. And Scott says to me, "This was like two weeks ago, Jeff. That product that you guys build, it's called Object Studio, is one of the best five best development products ever created. I use it today." <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I thought that is amazing. Okay. That is amazing. So that team, uh, we were motivated by a number of different threads, but one of them was Alan Kay at Xerox Park. Alan was the inventor of Smalltalk. Mm-hmm. And of course, we were Smalltalk guys. Alan came to MIT to get a uh, a presentation for along with uh, almost a dozen language inventors. They all presented papers, got awards. <clears throat> and his paper on Smalltalk described what happened at Xerox Park, where they invented the personal computer. They invented the Windows interface. They brought the mouse over from SRI and connected the mouse. They invented the Ethernet. They invented the laser printer. I mean, we're sitting there in the MIT audience like, this one team invented everything. (laughs) (laughs) Invented life as we know it today. (laughs) They they didn't leave anything for the rest of us. (laughs) 
But we said we, we knew we needed a new process for people using our round-trip engineering tools. So we said what he didn't invent was a team process to really leverage that technology. And so okay. that's what we're going to focus on. Oh, cool. I love that you called it a team process. Yeah. And I was listening to one of your previous podcasts by a woman that was talking about ensembles, mm-hmm. most recent. Yeah. And it struck me because uh, we had a couple of Danish guys on the team, three of them, I think. And uh, we talked about how, how do we think of the software itself? It's going to be an ensemble of components that plays together like an orchestra. Uh-huh. And therefore, because of Conway's law, the way the team works has to be like an ensemble. Yeah. So the whole conception of this uh, was firstly strongly influenced by one of the greatest developers ever and his team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but also by a global, you know, the technology was from a German company. We had these three Danish guys. Uh, we had a bunch of, uh, of Americans, but it was a it was a global team with very different perspectives. Mm-hmm. That was really trying to build something great, and as it turned out, the that energy fed on itself, so that the team, every person became a better person, <laughs> and what they did was beyond what we could think possible. And you come in every day just excited. <laughs> and accelerated by everyone else on the team. We formalized what we now know as Scrum by the end of 1993. And then in 1994, we delivered two releases of Object Studio. uh, And the company was then acquired by a bigger company called VMark, uh, mainly because of Object Studio. Mm -hmm. And so then the team had to split up because only half of the team Uh, wanted to move to the new location and so it was very interesting people people were really (laughs) some of them were in my office crying saying i'm going to be looking for a team like this for the rest of my life (laughs) (laughs) i'm never going to find it (laughs) what am i going to do so so fortunately today we have scrum so there's a lot of opportunity (laughs) (laughs) and yeah oh that's a wild story now okay this team how many people are we talking about uh there was about eight people when we got uh, full fully maxed out okay i've written this uh this little book called the scrum papers i'm updating it now it's on the web where i try to document all this yeah and i have the names of every team member except one. I'm still trying to figure out the name of him. Oh. A, he was a master's student at the University of Massachusetts that we hired, and and he became one of our, our lead tester. And we were uh-huh. building a very sophisticated automated testing system. Uh, and he was a great, but I've forgotten the guy's name. <laughs> I have every other name. <laughs> I hope we can find him. Maybe, maybe through this maybe podcast, we'll find him. <laughs> um, so, okay. So this team, uh, I also like to ask people about 
one word that that like when you take yourself back to this team and and sort of re-experience it, relive it, and, and we were just doing this. You, you, you're definitely reliving it more than I am. You're, you're telling the story. Yeah. I'm just I'm listening to the story. What yeah. does it feel like within you as you as you re-experience this team? And, and and is there one word you could use to describe that that sensation? The one word I that comes to me was transcendent. They, transcendent. they transcended their personal limitations. Mm. And my personal experience coming in every day at the time I had spent many years going all the way back to my uh, time in Vietnam, flying over North Vietnam. Uh, I got interested in Tibetan Buddhism. So I had been meditating for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was actually undergoing multiple initiations the Tibetan community, they, they would have these conferences, and they invited a senior lama from Tibet over, and then he would do this initiation. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would say, you know, this is like a seed that we're going to put in your heart. You know, you won't notice much immediately, but that's going to, you know, it's going to sit there, and then it's going to grow, and it's going to change everything. Mm-hmm. And so as I came into the easel software team every day, all of a sudden I would feel things would happen. I'd feel strangely, strangely compelled. Okay. Out of my gut. It was not mental. We need to do it this way. (laughs) And that kept on happening every day. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was like, it's the kind of thing a good scrum master would do, right? You come in every day and then the team context is maybe changed a little bit. How can we steer things in a little different different direction? And as we were doing that every day, all of a sudden, the team performance and capability just started building and building and building mm-hmm. uh, until you know it was you know it was unbelievable to people what we could wow. get. There. I've never heard you tell this. I've I've never heard you tell this story uh, about relating this to 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 Buddhism. So that that's really fascinating. Yeah, I don't talk about it much because. You know, I, I know Jim Copeland can relate to it. He uh-huh. he was in uh, he came to our scrum master training in Denmark, and he says to me in the middle of the of the scrum master course, he says, "This smells like Buddhism." <laughs> and Jim is a very deep thinker, so we started kind of drilling down, and, yeah. and we got to this. <clears throat> but the issue is that. You know, life is full of problems, right? That's the Four Noble Truths starts with life is full of dukkha. Mm-hmm. Second, there's a reason for that. And the reason is you're holding on to old ways of doing things. Oh. And then the third noble truth is there is a way out. And then they then there's these eight rules, you know, for living a good life. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, we just took that and applied that to Scrum, right? Life is full of impediments. Your Scrum team is full of impediments. Yep. There is a way out. Identifying, prioritizing, and <laughs> systematically remove those impediments. Okay. Will actually change. It actually changes reality. It changes yeah. the way things work. Uh, both. <laughs> both objectively and externally, but also the people themselves. Sure. 
Our, our company is full of problems. Why? Because we're holding on to old ways of working <laughs> and there is a way forward. That's wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> okay. Now, now this, this, this easel team, um, subjectively, what else about this team, uh, lets you know that this was a really great team. You know, I think all the members of the team went on to do great things. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff, Jeff McKenna was a, <clears throat> um, considered himself the first agile coach. Uh-huh. And uh, he was a consultant of the team. Um, he would come in for a week. He lived in, on the West Coast. He would come in for at least a week a month. And then he'd spend time with each of the team members. And because we had this engineering tool, they all team members had on their wall a complete, today would use UML at the time for yeah. using code urine or one of the other design, a complete object diagram of what they were working on. And I remember one day I walked into a developer's workspace after Jeff had been there for uh, about an hour and he had a map of objects that filled the whole side of the wall but about 75% of it had been clipped by scissors and was lying on the floor, shredded. <laughs> he said, Jeff, Jeff just threw away 75% of my code. Uh, so that kind of thing it produces radical innovation. I mean, yeah. you've got somebody that's expert enough to walk in and one day throw away 75% of the code you've written and say, you know, start over with this. Yeah seed and and do that constantly that that's more like that's more like a leader who yeah. serves than a, a leader who serves yeah uh the other person uh john scumley who was the the first scrum master <clears throat> has gone on to be vp of engineering of many companies mm-hmm. uh, started his own companies he's uh, uh he went to rational rose after easel uh <laughs> Rational had one of the big tool tools. He tried to fix that. Not did a lot of good work. <laughs> um, but I, I think if you you go back and track any individual that's on that team, they they've all gone on to do great things yeah. there. In their wow. Life. All right. Um, and then the other side of this, objectively, how do we know this is a great team? Um, and we got one thing you said was that somebody is still using this product, and it's like thirty years later. You know, a while back, I went. I was in Sweden, and Syncom, which acquired the product, mm-hmm. was having a uh, a mob programming demo because you, the product today you can do mob programming. Yep. And we had about twelve people uh, in an hour long session, <clears throat> and we we built a game together in an hour. Yep. Everybody was working on the same code looking at the same screen from from different rooms, some of them, right? Yeah. At all just working on that same code. Built a built a game in an hour that would have taken days uh, on normal thing. Yeah. Syncom said, you know, this product has revenue has gone up at least 10% a year since the year we acquired it. They acquired mm-hmm. it, I think, in 1996. Mm-hmm. It's never stopped improving. All right. There's uh, an objective measure and and as as uh, as scott said it's, it, 
in his view, is is today still one of the best five development tools available. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing that I felt good about in in several domains. We've been able to have teams create products that twenty years later are still great products. Yeah. So there's been the kind of this lasting, and, and the products go through multiple companies, and and even though the company has all changed, the product has some kind of internal life of its own. Yeah. That causes way, it to move on. Yeah. A way of working with it that, that yeah. is built into the product now. Yeah. Cool. Now, I have another question. I'm sure you have an opinion about this. Do you have any advice for listeners about how to have a really great team of their own? Well, <clears throat> the first thing I, that you need to understand is continuous improvement. You, you need to have the attitude that every day you're going to get better. And I learned that back when I was a cadet at West Point. The very first day I'm coming in, I'm standing in line in front of the gym in a T-shirt with my duffel bag. And working out in the gym off to my right is the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. And they were awesome. I mean, <laughs> superhuman. You could not believe what they could physically do. And I found out that the, the army gymnastics coach was the Olympic coach. Uh -huh. And so I decided to go out for the gymnastics team as soon as I got through that first summer in Beast Barracks. And, and I was on the parallel bars and for years, the Olympic team member, the best parallel bar guy on the Olympic team was the assistant coach. And every day, he would have me do my exercise over and over again. And every time I do it, he'd say, okay, this is not quite right. Make this change. Yeah. Over and over. No judgment. And that taught me, you know, how Olympic teams be great. Continuously small improvements. Yeah. And then in my last year, uh, I became what they called training officer of my company, uh, one of the responsibilities was getting the cadets to march well on the parade field. And my company was, was one of the worst marching companies. And they had been for a hundred years. They'd been known as the loose dues because of the laid back <laughs> attitude. You know? For a hundred years. And nothing I tried made anything any better <laughs> until I put, started putting color coded notes on the company bulletin board. Okay. Here's the things that cost us points uh, in the last parade. And to get better, here's the, here's the impediments we need to fix in priority order. Yeah. So making that work visible and particularly making, getting the impediments into the backlog. Mm -hmm. uh, that is what, uh, you know, team members need to understand. Every single day you come in, it's going to be a better day because you're going to make an improvement and you have your sticky notes on the wall. <laughs> uh, you're going to have the product backlog of what you're building, but the way you work that backlog, the impediments need to be built into it. You need to be working that backlog. So it's getting better every day. And so, right. and if you do that, the team will self-organize to be great. 
I'm uh, I'm so inspired by this. I need to get myself a piano coach yeah. who who watches me and listens to me and tells right. me the thing to do next or right. the things to do next. I think I know, but I, I bet there's somebody who knows better. And of course, the challenge from a scrum master's point of view or a team leader's point of view is that people don't necessarily want to get better every day. <laughs> there are constantly problems and uh, trying to get getting everybody on the same page and then executing that improvement process. That That is the real leadership. Yeah. Okay. So here, here's something interesting. I, I'll just, I'll say it in first person. I, I get paid by salary. I'm going to get paid anyway, right? Why, why do I have to work harder every day and, and do things a little bit differently every day? I'm going to get paid anyway. Well, let's go back to the first scrum team. Yeah. At the time, I was uh, a volunteer on the president advisory board of a company called Axion, a nonprofit mm-hmm. that was doing micro enterprise, micro enterprise lending in South America, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, uh, lending small amounts of money, $25 to really poor people, people who could not feed the children. Yeah. And what they found is that if you formed like a team and then you coached everybody to come up with a little business plan, uh, then a guy might say, well, I'll, I'll, if I have $25, I'll buy some wood, I'll make a fruit cart, I'll sell fruit in town square. One might say, I can buy a sewing machine for 25 bucks, I'll start selling dresses. And within a few weeks, they were able to feed the kids mm-hmm. and they had a little mo- money left over so they could buy clothes, which was really significant because if you have no food, you have no clothes for the kids. If you have no clothes for the kids, they can't go to school. But once you have clothes, now the kids are in school. Now their business can ramp. Mm-hmm. And some of these people within six months, starting from not being able to feed the children, six months later, they're building a house for their extended family. Right. And I was stunned by the effect of, of that. And Professor Yunus in Bangladesh, who, who figured this out, got a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, I went back to my team one day, which at that time they were uh, working a lot of overtime, kind of late, management thought they were bad developers. And I said, how long has this been going on? You know, you're working overtime, you're working nights and weekends, management thinks you're really bad developers. And every person on the team said, this has been going on as long as I've been in software development. And some of the people that had been in software development a year or two, some of them 10 or 15 years, everyone said 100% bad developer, work overtime, always late, always too many bucks. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, I just came from a meeting at Axion, and I think if we had a different way of working within six months, I mean, we're like the poor people that have no food. We have food, but we have no software, right? (laughs) We are deprived of software. If we did what they're doing and working together, I think within six months, we would have so much software. It would be such good software that the management and the customers would ask us to slow down. (laughs) It would be like drinking from a fire hose. (laughs) And when they did that, we could take back our life. Yeah. and regain our dignity as people 
would you like to try it? <laughs> and I vividly remember the meeting where everybody thought for a minute and they said, we've got nothing to lose. <laughs> well, let's try. Let's try it. And, and that's what got them. Okay. Well, that. That's what the leader who serves convince those people that are just coming in and collecting the paycheck yeah. that life could be great. You could have more fun. Ooh. You could have more time off. You could work with a, a team that you just, I mean, the only way to describe it is love. It's so great working with these people. Yeah that you remember it for the rest of your life. You want to try it? <laughs> I mean, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. <laughs> it's, it's wild. It's crazy talk. <laughs> um, I'm also, I'm, I'm, so going back to that, that story of the gymnastics practice, um, what, what, what was it about your past that got you to that point? What what happened in your past that got you to the point where when you got to the gym that day and you discovered that the the, the gymnastics coach was the Olympics gymnastics coach and the, the best gymnast was the assistant coach? Or uh, What was it that led you to be so eager? To, I mean, you could have done anything while you were there, but suddenly you said gymnastics. Yeah, I... You know, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm pretty laid back. But something about that environment and seeing that Olympic team working out it inspired me. I mean, uh -huh. it, I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. And so I said, "Well, you know, I know I I, I know I'll never be as great as as these guys, but I I, I can be better." And they can help me be a lot better. Uh -huh. And then once I got into the training program, I said, wow, this is, this is different. This is a different way of, of thinking about performance. Mm -hmm. Much more rigorous. Um, it, it's, it's a radically different way of working from what, the way I was brought up as a kid. Yeah. And so they, they took me into a different world, right? Yeah. All right. All right. Is there anything else you want to add on? We've talked a lot about teams in general, a specific team, Scrum, the new Scrum. Well, I, I, Agile. You know, I think, as I mentioned earlier, we I had one set of teams at a company mm -hmm. called Patient Keeper, right? And they they were able to do something that I never thought a software team would ever be able to do. And I was the CTO of the company. I started Scrum there. <clears throat> I was actually on the uh, a member of the team uh, for quite a while, building out our systems to support Scrum. Mm -hmm. We were building hospital systems, and these we would install applications for physicians that would do everything, both on the mobile and the web for a physician. And to do that, we had to connect into the back ends of any major system in the hospital that had any information a physician needed. And there were thousands of them in big hospitals. And uh, so we would have to come in and install on top of all these hospital systems in the biggest hospitals in the United States or the world for that matter, 
and so that whole installation, training of physicians, bring in the hardware and software was like this huge enterprise deployment. Yeah. So in the early days, by implementing Scrum, we really tuned up the, the Scrum process and the tooling so that the teams eventually be, were able to deploy to four major hospitals every sprint like clockwork and uh, in that time frame, they probably update 35 or more of the hospitals we already had deployed. Right. So that meant almost every week we were going live at major hospital systems. Mm -hmm. And so the, the level of automation and focus, uh, today they call it DevOps, but most people don't really do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, DevOps means complete automated testing and deployment. You push a button and it deploys like at Amazon, you know, what they're doing now with 3,300 teams at Amazon. It's, you finish a story, you hit a button, it rolls through all the automated infrastructure, it deploys automatically. If there's a fail, if there's problems, it automatically rolls back. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, and it works and we know it works and somebody uses it. And so we had that kind of thing going at PatientKeeper. And the thing that uh, the thing that I was really looking for was not just a high productive team, but a high productive company. Yeah. And that company was a startup started in 2000. It took till about yeah, and the revenue is just very slowly ramping until about maybe 2004, and then we hit that point where we can actually deliver, you know, full DevOps, full on DevOps. And the revenue went from like 10 to 15 million to 50 million in one year. We, wow. we got on that, which is what we're seeing now in the COVID environment for many companies doing Scrum. Uh -huh. Okay, so those teams did something I didn't think was possible. They actually, you know, far exceeded my expectations. So I, yeah. I've seen that a number of times, but never as dramatic as a patient keeper where yep. you implement Scrum, you fix some impediments, yeah. try to do a little coaching. And then all of a sudden the team takes off and they just do unbelievable things that you didn't even imagine it was possible for people to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned this happening during this past 12 months with COVID worldwide. Now, many of us, I mean, you, you, you talked about a demonstration of people doing mob programming or ensemble work, and a couple of them were remote. What's, what's happening that even though we can't work together face-to-face, -to -face, or most of us haven't been working together face-to-face, -face, what's been happening that, that has helped teams and, and teams of teams accelerate so much? Well, one of the things that we know, uh, and we wrote, wrote the first paper on this, I think back in 2007, we had a globally deployed Russia, Canada, United States, mm -hmm. multiple teams, uh, you know, dozens of, many dozens of teams where every team was in multiple locations. Yep. So all teams were remote. And that implementation was able to hit uh, what we call linear scalability. Actually, they went mm -hmm. super linear. They doubled the number of teams and they more than doubled production. 
So we know from that experience that it's possible to work as well remotely as it is locally with Scrum. Yeah. Uh, even though it's, it needs more discipline, it is a little harder. You have to be more focused. Yeah. So as soon as we went to this COVID lockdown, I mean, I started getting notes. I got a note from a senior vice president of uh, Amgen, one of the biggest biotech companies. He said, Jeff, thank God we went to Scrum last October. Mm-hmm. Within a week of lockdown, we're working totally remotely and everything's back to normal. Wow. He says, our competitors who are using traditional project management are dead in the water and they are going to be dead until COVID's over. It's mm-hmm. still not over. And he says, when it is over, it's going to take them a year or two to climb out of the pit that they've fallen into. Yep. So COVID all of a sudden gave a tremendous competitive advantage to people who can do remote scrum well. Okay. So they are capturing all the business from their competitors, thousands of which are going bankrupt. So we have this situation, you know, Amazon, it's obvious they're going to go up and COVID because they're delivering stuff, people need more deliveries. So their stock went up two, three, 400%. What people don't realize is companies like John Deere we've been working with, percentage-wise, their stock went up more than Amazon. Uh-huh. They're the biggest farm equipment manager, equipment manager in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's because they've been really working on deploying Scrum enterprise-wide. Mm-hmm. And that's given her a tremendous advantage. So there's dozens of companies like that. And um, the world is changing right now. COVID was a catalyst for the changing that the changes that were emerging all of a sudden are forced. Right. Uh, Production needs to be much more rapid. We're moving much more to using robots, we can pull things local, use 3D printers. Uh, and, and and that is causing a wave of technological change that is accelerating faster than people can really keep up with. Mm-hmm. And so if a company has a good uh, Scrum implementation, they can take advantage of that globally to dominate the world and even companies that don't do scrum well, like Tesla, (laughs) Tesla is one of the most agile companies of the world. So they've got agility down. Uh, We've done some scrum training inside the company and they, they have some scrum and they want more uh, because basically Eli's strategy is everybody works 80 hours a week, right? Mm -hmm. Our, Our strategy is you work 40 hours a week and you do twice as much work as the guys doing 80 hours a week. Right. Right. That's the whole concept. Right. So there's a bunch of people inside of Tesla doing Scrum that want more of that. Yeah. <laughs> but even without uh, the company is extremely lean, which is the first half of getting Scrum right. Um, and they they produce, not only do they update my car every two weeks with new features, and it's not just software right now. Hardware is you know, 80% software today. Yeah. So you can put in a new software release and all of a sudden the car runs faster. Yeah. 
turns better. <laughs> it has more range. Yeah. <laughs> and it stops quicker, right? <laughs> so you're able to actually do hardware upgrades because of the software capability. Mm -hmm. And the hardware itself on Tesla assembly lines is there are on the average 13 major hardware innovations rolling off the assembly line every quarter. Which is crazy. Which in... is which is the guys that work at Ford said they maybe did one a year. So yeah. 13 a quarter, that's 52 times faster than Ford. Right. So they are accelerating, you know, they're 10 years ahead of the competition in, in many areas. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, the competition is going to come in and crush them, but they are accelerating ahead of where, of where they are now. Yeah. So um, Tesla is going to be like Bitcoin. You know? It's, it's right. going to go up. It's, it's going to be like <laughs> the iPhone of cars, right? Sure. Half of the people in the world have an iPhone and half of the people in the world will have a Tesla. That's a lot of Teslas to build. <laughs> I know there's a, there's observation, but it seems like half the people who live around me have a Tesla. <laughs> yeah, we don't have it that many around where I live, but it's it's always increasing, right? Yeah. Well, all right, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, how how could uh, listeners and viewers get in touch with you? They, uh, you know, you can. You can email me, Jeff at scruminc.com. You can go to scruminc.com and you can see all of the courses and stuff we're doing. Uh, you can go at Amazon and download uh, Scrum the Art of Doing Twice the Work and Half the Time. Um, and we've got a couple of other books uh, that are really important. Um, but what I've tried to do, particularly in, in Scrum, How to Do Twice the Work and Half the Time, I've really tried to write the story of what we've talked about today. Right. What was at the root of the creation of Scrum and the, the teams going into a super performing state? And how can everybody else do that? It, it's, you know, it, we've, we've tried it, we've made it really simple. I remember a, a guy running an energy company in Kenya, in Nairobi, came to New York, he was a Ford Foundation fellow, came to New York, he said, I want to talk to you about what I've done. I read your book six months ago, and twice the work and half the time. We're doing a lot better than that. Every one of my teams is doing three times the work and a third of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy had never done anything except read that book, okay? Right. So if you haven't read it, strongly recommend it. And it's written for the the average business person okay it's not written for a software developer it's written for the average business person that's just trying to be more successful mm -hmm. all right and we'll include links to these in episode notes and uh, and on screen for people watching the video great jeff thank you so so much for joining us today i really appreciate this time together and listeners and viewers remember to support this podcast visit my website kasparowski.com <laughs>